right, good morning. How's everyone doing? Doing well? Praise God. Uh, super excited uh, for this Sunday. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, my name is uh, Pastor Alberto, and I have the honor and privilege of leading this church alongside our co-elder, Thaddeus, who is roaming around uh, in the back uh, under Chief Elder and Chief Shepherd Jesus. And so we gather every Sunday morning to worship God. Uh, I've said this before, and I think we need this reminder. I know my heart needs this reminder, is that the Sunday morning gathering is not just a religious activity that we check off our list, and then we go eat lunch, and then we go watch the Dallas Cowboys win. That's not why we gather on Sunday mornings. Uh, We gather on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, and we do this by lifting up the Lord in song as we declare with our words how good and amazing Jesus is. And then we come together and we pray and and we lift up and commune and enter into God's presence through prayer. And then we worship in community like we just did. We take a few minutes to get to know each other, to check in on each other, to see how our week is going, to make plans to, to extend this community into Monday through Saturday. And then we look at the word of God as the word was given to us for our transformation so that we could know God uh, and become more like Jesus. And so at this point in the service, we dive into worshiping the Lord in uh, the word. But before we do that, I want to take a, just a few minutes to, uh, uh, to highlight a, a thing that's very important to our church. Uh, one of our core values here is diversity. Uh, and we value diversity, not for diversity's sake, but for Jesus' sake. Uh, because we know that the kingdom of God is a diverse kingdom. Uh, Jesus is the God of the nations, not just one nation. And in the Trinity, we see the diversity of God at display where we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, communing with one another. And from that place, creating a diverse world. Uh, From the very beginning, it was God's heart to create a diverse people, uh, diverse ethnicities and cultures that come together and display different aspects of uh, of God's divinity, different aspects of the image of God. And so this month is Hispanic Heritage Month. It was kicked off on September 15th. And uh, one of the things that that, that, uh, fascinates me that I thought was kind of interesting is that uh, Hispanic Heritage Month starts on September 15th because it coincides with quite a few different Latin American countries' Independence Day. Uh, On September 15th, we celebrate Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica, uh, followed by Mexico on September 16th, and then Chile on September 18th yesterday, and then Belize on September 21st, and it's a month dedicated to honoring the contributions of the Hispanic Latino culture. And we want to honor that. We want to celebrate that, knowing that God has created us to live in community uh, with people, different ethnicities and cultures, where we would see different aspects of God's image and character reflected in different ethnicities. And one of the things that I'm reminded about as I reflect on on, on all these nations uh, celebrating Independence Day is how the gospel brings freedom. The gospel of Jesus comes and frees us from our sins so that we can be in relationship with Jesus, but also in relationship with one another. And now our differences don't serve as barriers to divide us. Rather, they bring us together in Christ so that we can celebrate our diverse God in community with one another. And so I just want to celebrate this morning, Hispanic Heritage Month, and also celebrate the freedom that comes in the gospel that allows us to be a diverse church. Um, and so really excited uh, about this also because I'm Hispanic and I've just been binge watching George Lopez all, all month. So that has just been such a fun time. Uh, so yeah, 
I will not rant there. I want to. I want to keep going, but I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, that'll be a future sermon illustration. Uh, but with that, let's, let's pray. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for God's word. Lord, we thank you uh, for this Sunday morning. We thank you for the freedom that's found in the gospel that allows us to come together and experience life with one another. Uh, and our connection to one another isn't necessarily based on our agreements, our ethnicity, our skin color. It's connect- our, we are connected to one another because we're first connected to you. And so, Lord, we celebrate uh, the wonderful contributions of uh, the Hispanic Latino culture. We celebrate this gathering this morning. And, Lord, I ask that your hand would be over us as we look into your word. I pray that you would transform us. I believe this morning God is going to change everything. And, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to lean in to the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Uh, We've been going through this series called New Life on Mission. And what we've been doing is examining uh, the, the last half of the book of Ephesians uh, and seeing what does new life on mission look like. A few weeks ago, uh, we spent four weeks in chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, and we discuss how Jesus transfers us from death into life, how apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin, unable to come alive in Christ. And this death uh, not only taints our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. And and we see the, the effects of sin fracture every single part of the world that we live in. And God, in his great love and mercy and grace, enters into our story and offers us a better way to live. He comes uh, and takes the initiative and takes upon himself the curse of sin, the sting of death on the cross so that we can have new life with him, so that we can be redeemed and reconciled and restored to God the Father and be in relationship with him. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he doesn't just die to gather a, a loose collection of souls. Rather, he invites us into his mission. He invites us to partner with him in advancing this gospel to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the goodness and the light of Jesus, not to a select few, but to everyone. And that's the aim of this series is examining, now that we have a new life, what does life on mission look like? And if you've grown up in the church or if you've been in some sort of Christian context, you, you might have heard this phrase thrown around, life on mission. Let's live life on mission. And, and, and there's a thousand different ways of understanding this and approaching this. And sometimes when we think about life on mission, we think, yes, let's go. Let's go to an obscure country and let's share the gospel and let's uh, be witnesses of Jesus. And, and that's an aspect of it. Uh, But I would argue that life on mission takes on many different forms. That life on mission is, is going into your everyday world and entering into the everyday stuff of life, knowing that Jesus is with you, knowing that he said, go into all the nations and I'll be with you always and I've given you authority, and that Jesus has commissioned us to share faith, to represent him and embody him in every area and aspect of life. And if we're honest with ourselves, living a life on mission is hard. Uh, it's difficult. Uh, because the minute that we maybe muster enough courage to say, I'm going to share faith and I'm going to share Jesus with my family member, with my coworker, or with this person that the Lord's been putting on my heart to pray for, we immediately feel this fear. Uh, we're overcome by anxiety. We begin to tremble. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd rather support people being 
uh, living a life on mission than, than living a life on mission for ourselves. We'd rather pray for people and say, yes, go do it. I'm praying for you. I'm supporting you. You've got it. But Jesus doesn't call us to be sideline fans. He calls us to be on the field with him, partnering with him, standing with him, living on mission with him, proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus to everyone, because it's for everyone. And this looks like going into our most normal places and being a light of Jesus to the world around us. So when you go into your work, when you walk into the grocery store, when you are parenting your kids and you're in the nursery, what story does your life tell? What story does the way you live tell the world around you? Is it a story of a person who's been transformed by grace and mercy and love? Is it a story of hope and joy and reconciliation and life in Christ? Or is it a completely different story? A story where Jesus isn't the center, the main person. One of the reasons we struggle with living on mission is because we're trying to be the source of power in our own lives. We're trying to muster up all the faith and all the courage and all the power and all the right words and all the right things to to, to be able to be bold about Christ. But praise God, the scriptures offer a different vision for life on mission. Let's look at Ephesians 3, 7 through 12. I want to invite you to stand with me. And we do this to honor the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can look at the screen. Uh, I want you to read this. Uh, I want you to look at it because there's something powerful about gazing into the word of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. Paul says this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes, eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. With the remaining time we have together, I have one sort of big idea that's going to frame the rest of this word, and it's this. New life on mission is empowered by the grace of God. New life on mission is empowered by the grace of God. New life on mission is not empowered by your own power, by your own efforts, by your own ability to muster up strength and faith. No, new life on mission is empowered by the grace of God. And I have two points. Number one, encountering grace. And number two, embracing grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I pray that you would uh, make this word come alive in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed by your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My son has started, he's retired crawling. He doesn't crawl anymore. It's a shame. He's a full-time walker now. 
and uh, his, his, his new mobility has come with all sorts of new problems. He doesn't sleep anymore. Um, he's very independent. He, he doesn't want to be around us while we hold his hand. Uh, and so it's been very draining, but this word has been very life-giving. So I say that to say that this word is energizing me right now. So I'm really excited uh, to look at it. Uh, let's look at verse 7 as we talk about encountering grace. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, or your translation might say servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So the Apostle Paul, the early church leader and church planner, is writing to a specific group in uh, Ephesus, and, and he's saying that God has made him a servant, that he was made a servant, he was made a minister according to God's gift, uh, a gift of grace by the working of his power. So my question is, uh, when was this grace given? And what is Paul talking about? Uh, Well, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 9, as we look at Paul's origin story, as he expounds on the moment that grace was given and that the power of God was working through his life. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 9, we're going to read through this together. But Saul, uh, or Paul, uh, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. So if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now this, this sounds very different from the person that we just read. The person that we just read said, oh man, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's so wonderful and amazing and he's changed my life and you have access to him and you can come to him in freedom. And yet we see here that this is an entirely different man. And it is. This man was a Pharisee. This man was a high priest who carried tons of political and societal power. This man ruled the land because of his allegiance to this high Jewish order of priests. And in this time, Christians, or what they were called followers of the way because they would follow the way of Jesus. These Christians and these Jews and Pharisees completely opposed each other. Water and oil, they did not mix. They had a rivalry and they hated one another. Why? Because followers of the way, Christians were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, who would come and overthrow the greatest enemy, the enemy of sin, and bring new life to all. And these followers of Jesus said, he fits the description. He's fulfilled all of the prophecies. This is our God in the flesh. His name is Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious elite of this day and age, they were not having it. Uh, They considered this blasphemy. How can this ordinary man, who they considered ordinary, be the son of God? How can this ordinary man uh, be the prophet, priest, and king of Israel? This is Jesus. His dad is Joseph. His mom is Mary. There's nothing special about him. And so it became the mission of the, uh, this religious elite, the Pharisees, to wipe out all Christians. Uh, they were mandated. They were commissioned to put an end to this movement violently. Uh, This looked like persecuting the early church, killing the early church, stoning the early church. We see Stephen being stoned and murdered for his commitment to Jesus. And Saul, the man we just read in Ephesians 3, was committed to this mission, zealously committed to violently persecuting anybody who was associated with Jesus so that he could end this way. 
and bring back order to the way things have always been in this Jewish world. And so, verse 3, he went on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Why? Because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. They heard a voice from heaven, God speaking to Saul, but they saw no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the moment that Paul encountered God. This was the moment that he experienced grace manifesting itself in God's power as he was knocked off his donkey horse and experienced the power of Jesus. And Jesus spoke to him. He asked him, why are you persecuting me. And then he commissioned him, he he raised him up and commanded him and initiated this new life of transformation. In this moment, Paul had an encounter with God and he encountered God's grace. So what happens when you encounter God's grace? What happens when you encounter the manifestation of his power through his grace? Number one, You're humbled by grace. In this moment, Paul was humbled by grace. How was Paul humbled? Very physically, he was knocked off his horse, and he experienced so. uh, this man who carried so much power and authority was stripped of his power, was stripped of his authority. When the Lord brought him down and removed his sight, and he felt the power and presence of God as he was communicating to him. Uh, This was such a humbling experience for Paul because, mind you, Paul considered himself one of the most brilliant, intellectually trained uh, Pharisee scholars in all the land. He was uh, classically trained by his priest Gamaliel, who we read about in the book of Acts. Paul knew his stuff. Paul could reason and Paul could think, and he knew that Jesus wasn't the Messiah because he reasoned for himself that he couldn't be. And he concluded that the way of Jesus was a false way, that it was um, that following Jesus was wrong. And in this moment, he was humbled. All of his thoughts about Jesus, all of his ambitions towards the people of God were immediately silenced and relinquished as he was knocked down and brought to a very humble, powerless state when he experienced the presence of God. He, so much so that that in the following verse, Paul considered himself the least of all the saints. Uh, He considered himself the chief sinner, the lowest of the low. And I love this quote that I read. Uh, When you view yourself as the least of all the saints, when you have this humbling experience, you will gladly serve the least of these. Grace humbles you. Grace does not make us proud. When we encounter the grace of God, the images of ourselves are not elevated. Rather, we are brought down low with 
Jesus. Grace humbles us, and it causes us to identify with everyone. And if we're going to be a people of God that believes that the gospel is for everyone, we need to be humbled by the grace of God because it's in that place that we realize that the grace of God is not just for me, it's for everyone, uh, including the poor, including the weak, because we realize that no one is beneath us. No one is beneath you. No one is beneath the good news of Jesus. The least of all the saints give love, time, and energy Why? Because everyone's created in God's image. I love this quote by Philip Yancey. He says, grace, like water, flows to the lowest parts. You want to experience the grace of God. You want to experience the power of God. Uh, We posture ourselves in this place of humility saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, help me. Lord, there is no power within myself to follow you. Uh, There is no power within myself to sustain this marriage, to sustain this relationship, to sustain this friendship. There is no power within myself to become more like you. I need your grace. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, like water, it begins to flow into our hearts. Paul was humbled by grace. The second thing that happens when you encounter grace is that you are raised by grace. The Lord doesn't just humble us and leave us there. Rather, we are raised to new life. Acts 9, we continue uh, reading. It says, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise. Grace humbles us, but grace, uh, uh, but when God encounters us and we experience his grace, we rise, not an elevated version of ourselves. We rise to new life in Jesus. Rise, he said, enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. When we experience the grace of God, we rise to new life. Uh, the reason why we rise to new life is because now, uh, through God's grace, we are freed from ourselves and we can enter into a relationship with Jesus. Not where we call all of the shots and say, this is the type of life that I want to live and these are my desires and these are the things that I'm passionate about and God, uh, let me put my plans next to yours and let's sort of compromise and negotiate this. No, when we come into relationship with God, he becomes the Lord and Savior of our life and whatever he asks of us, Whatever he commands us to do, we joyfully submit to his lordship because there is no better way to live than living in obedience to God. Paul, the Lord told Paul, rise and enter the city immediately. The Lord captivated Paul's heart and became the Lord of his life as he began to instruct him and lead his life. When we are risen by grace, We rise to a new life in Jesus. And this new life in Jesus is marked by Jesus being the Lord of our life. And so how he asks us to live and where he tells us to go and and what he asks of us, uh, there is no thing too small for uh, Christ. That our, our obedience is a worthy obedience to the king of the universe. We're humbled by grace. We are risen by grace. And the third thing that happens when you encounter grace is you become a messenger of grace. We continue to read the story in verse 10. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in the vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. It's a good street name. That one, Straight. And at the house of Judas, uh, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might, might regain sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard, about, uh, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. This man carried a reputation. Uh, this was not sort of like, uh, uh, this is in the Christian biography of Paul. He was a man who inflicted much evil and much pain and much chaos amongst the church, so much so that even this man knew about it. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Are you sure, Lord, you've got the right guy? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. There is no place too far that our sin can take us, that the grace of God can't come and reach us, whether it's God personally meeting us where we are or him using you as an instrument of grace and love to bring a brother and sister back into his kingdom. The the people in our minds that we think of that, oh no, Jesus can never change their life. Oh no, they're too far gone from God. No, Lord, not, not that person. You know that person. Uh, you, you know how they slander you in the break room. You know, Lord, how they talk evil about you. You know how uh, they're all over the place relationally and they want nothing to do with you uh, and, and they slander you and they hate you and they give themselves to all sorts of sin. Yet when the Lord says go, he sends us with an authority that doesn't come from within ourselves but is from the kingdom of heaven where God begins to work in us and through us to be his instruments of reconciliation, to be his ambassadors of hope. The Lord said, go, he is a chosen instrument. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I love that. Uh, Jesus, um, I'm very encouraged by how clearly Jesus sets expectations. This man will follow me. He will suffer a lot, but it'll be worth it. And when we come and follow Jesus, there's going to be aspects of it that's filled with joy and happiness and peace, yet there's others that are going to be marked by suffering and sanctification, and it's going to feel very uh, afflicting, and yet we know that even in that place, uh, Jesus is worthy of our life and that God is with us. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus 
by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus changes everything. You could be on your way to go make much of sin in your life and testify how living for yourself is the highest form of good and pleasure for you. And Jesus can encounter you in your car while you're sending a text message in your workplace and completely redirect your life. So much so that your life doesn't become about proclaiming and establishing your own kingdom and your own way. It becomes like Saul's, proving that Jesus was the Christ. What a beautiful, um, I just love the next steps program here. I saw you were saved, let's get you baptized, hang out with us, now go proclaim the name of Jesus. There's nothing, there's no like in between, get formed up, get trained. No, Uh, when Jesus gets inside of you, he cannot be caged in. He must come out and he comes out as we embody him and proclaim his words, his good news to the world around us. Paul became a messenger of grace. And this is what he said in in, in verse 3-8 to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Uh, What are the unsearchable riches? Here's what R.K. Hughes says. These unsearchable riches are the saving riches, the sanctifying riches, the relational riches, practical riches, eternal riches. Uh, What are the implications of this? Primarily that Christ always enriches life. Christ always enriches life. How mistaken the young man or the young woman who has rejected the gospel saying, don't preach Christ to me. I've got enough problems already. Christ never subtracts from life. He always enriches it with unsearchable riches. A corresponding implication for us is that we have a responsibility to share these riches with others. The good news of Jesus is that when he comes into your life, he doesn't come to add problems and he doesn't come to overwhelm you and burden you. He comes to set you free from yourself primarily through dying for your sins and bringing you back into union with him and in a relationship with him, you see that you have all of the sanctifying riches, the saving riches, the relational riches, the practical riches, the eternal riches that you need for a life of godliness. God does not run out of resources. God has provided for you everything that you need to live a life with him and on mission with others. These riches are uh, redemption through the blood of Jesus. Church, you've been redeemed. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you've been rescued from your sin. That, That Jesus has taken upon himself the wrath that you deserve on the cross so that you could experience eternal life with him. Your sins have been forgiven. Consider how rich you are. God always forgives you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, God always forgives you. One thing that Thaddeus and I have started doing probably for a month and a half now is uh, every morning I call him at 5.50 a.m. Because he's up at 5 a.m. and I get up at 5.45 (laughs) to make this call. And we get on the phone together and we spend 10 minutes confessing the previous day's sin. And then at the end of the call, we end by saying, you are 
forgiven. We are rich in forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us. There is no sin that we've committed that can't be covered by the forgiveness of God. And this forgiveness has set us free. Are you anxious? Are you uh, in turmoil? Do you feel bondage to your mind and yourself? Are you suffocating? Do you feel like you're holding in these secrets and these thoughts that you feel like God would never accept you if, if you confess it to him or if others knew about it? You are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is rich in grace and love. It's inexhaustible. It'll never run out. Church, God will never get tired of you. God will not get uh, annoyed with you. God delights in you. He enjoys you. He's not surprised when you come to him all over again in repentance for the same thing that you've been trying to put to death. He comes alongside of you, empowers you, carries your burden. Church, he enjoys you. He smiles over you. He's, He's proud of you. Do you believe that? That God is proud of you. That he loves you in Christ Jesus. But ultimately... The unsearchable riches of Christ center on the person of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ center on the person of Jesus. And the good news about Jesus is that he's not about rules and regulations. Uh, The good news about Jesus is that he's not about religious rituals. He's not about doing better and fixing yourself and getting everything right and knowing everything. Rather, he's about knowing him. Knowing Jesus Christ and knowing him personally. This experience and these riches of knowing Christ, hear me, are only offered to the poor in spirit. This experience of grace and these riches of knowing Jesus and experiencing life-giving relationship with him are only offered to those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for, those, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus mean by this? Well, well to be poor in spirit means to recognize that you are, uh, in spiritual, you are in utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. To be poor in spirit means that you realize that you are so bankrupt that you have nothing to offer God to change his mind about you. That you have nothing to offer God to make yourself a better version of yourself. That you have nothing to offer him to make him love you more. That you have nothing nothing to offer him to make him do things for you. It's understanding that you have nothing of worth to offer God. Being poor in spirit is admitting that because of your sin, You are completely destitute spiritually and you can do nothing to deliver yourself from a dire situation. Now, Jesus is saying that no matter your status in life, you must recognize your spiritual poverty before you come to God in faith to receive the salvation he offers. Uh, To be poor in spirit means that we know that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves a better version of ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to attain new life with Jesus through our own works or through our own efforts. So what does that mean? It means we come to God empty-handed and he fills us. It means we come to God as empty vessels saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer you but myself in faith. I am yours. Here I am. Send me. And an empty vessel 
is the vessel that God can fill as he begins to fill us with his grace, with his mercy, with his love, with his justice, with his joy, with his kindness. As we get all of the other stuff out of the way, I need to do better. Get that out of the way. I, I, I need to get right before God. We move it out of the way. I need to show up and get right and fix. We just move it all out of the way and say, Lord, I'm empty. Will you fill me? Will you transform me? Will you change me? And it's in that place when we humble ourselves that we experience the grace of God. And when we experience the grace of God, we begin to be, uh, we experience the power of God at work in us as he raises us to new life. New life on mission is empowered by grace. It is not empowered by our efforts, by our intelligence, by our religious history. Uh, by our faithfulness streak or our sinful resume. No, new life on mission is empowered by grace. And so if we're going to be a people that is empowered by grace, we first must encounter grace as we just spent some time talking about, encountering the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And second, we must continually embrace grace. This brings us to our second point, embracing grace. Grace cannot be earned. It is given. Twice, Paul says, grace given, not grace earned. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. God's grace was not given to me because I was the most elite religious Pharisee in all the land. God's grace was not given to me because I proved myself worthy of it. It was given as a gift. Nothing Paul did uh, and Paul could do nothing to earn it or deserve it. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, Paul's reemphasizing this, that it's a gift not based on his status or his achievements. This grace was given. Twice Paul says grace given. And so this is important that we understand and really cement, drill into our hearts that grace is given, not earned. Uh, grace is not achieved, it is received. Uh, God has created us to be the recipients of his grace, the recipients of his love, not earners or achievers. And uh, this is vitally important if we're going to enter into a relationship with Jesus because it reminds our hearts that grace has started this relationship and grace is going to sustain it. That your good works, that, that your performance, that your best efforts did not start this relationship with God. God didn't look down on you and say, man, you've really got your stuff going on. I'm going to use you now. And, and then say, all right, keep it up, champ. Don't sin and, you know, we'll be fine and do this whole life together. No, he doesn't do that. Rather, he initiates and starts this relationship with us independent of where we are or where we find ourselves, and he sustains this relationship. And this is really good news for you, church, because what this means is that when you find yourself in a cycle of sin that you can't shake yourself out of, when you find yourself in a pit of condemnation and shame, and the enemy is telling you, man, look at yourself. How could you? You can look back at the enemy and say, none of this started my relationship with God, and none of this is going to take away my relationship with God. It was the grace of God that started this relationship. It wasn't what I did or what I'm going to fail to do. It's what Jesus did and has already done and accomplished at the cross. And Jesus says it's finished. There's nothing else to prove. 
There's nothing else to earn. Grace started, grace saved, grace will sustain. The cross is the ultimate reminder that grace is given, not earned. Why? Because we deserve the cross. If there's one thing we deserve, it is the cross. We deserve that bloody sinful death. We deserve to experience the wrath of God's justice and the sting of death on that cross. But God, in his great love and compassion, in this great exchange, took our place and took upon himself our sin, our brokenness, took upon himself the death that we deserved so that we could receive new life in Christ. Jesus received wrath and justice and separation from the Father so that you and I, as Paul says, can have access to God. Jesus received the pain and the punishment and the condemnation and the shame of the cross so that we could draw near to him with boldness and confidence. Jesus was given to broken sinners so that we could receive him by Faith and this faith, this relationship, this new life is a gift. Salvation is not earned, it is given by God and it is received in faith. Grace is given, it's not earned. We are powerfully saved by God's grace, we are powerfully sustained by God's grace. If I'm spending time here, it's because I want you to know this and I want you to believe this that God has started this and God will sustain you, and that your worst moments this week is not going to take away the unsearchable riches that Jesus has provided for you. That God is not going to turn his face away from you. That God is not going to stop favoring you and moving in your life because of your perceived brokenness. Why? Because all of that was dealt with once and for all on the cross. So that you can know that when the father turned his face away from the son, he'll never turn his face away from you. You have boldness. You have access. You have freedom enter into relationship with him. Our hearts need this message. Our hearts need to be constantly reminded of this truth. Why? Because our hearts slip into earning. Our hearts slip into achieving. Uh, uh, one of my calls with that is, I was like, man, Daddy, I, I just haven't been reading my Bible and I haven't been praying. It's just been a really wonky few days. And when I'm saying that, here, here's what I'm saying, church. Here's what my heart believes. I, I believed in that moment that God thought less of me, that, that God wasn't like looking at me, that God wasn't interested in me, that God wasn't working in my life because I wasn't reading my Bible or praying. But praise God that the scriptures offer a different vision, a different way of living, that, that, that my activity, that, 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 that my earning and that my achieving doesn't sway God's opinion of me. Rather, he looks at me, he looks at you with delight and joy, uh, independent of who you are or what you're doing. Does this mean that we have an excuse to sin and to just do whatever we want? No, rather, our hearts are captivated by this, and the grace of God uh, draws us closer to him as we realize, man, uh, how much more do I want to commune with a God who's so generous and graceful and loving? And God's grace doesn't turn us away or shame us. Rather, when we're uh, aware of it, draws us in deeper with him. Our hearts need to be continually renovated by the grace of God. And this type of renovation is experienced through abiding with the person of grace himself, Jesus. 
new life on mission is empowered by the grace of God. Let's encounter and embrace his grace as we close in prayer. Lord, we praise you for this gift of new life that we have in Jesus. We praise you that the gospel speaks a better word. Uh, It's good news because uh, we can find life in you and enter into relationship with you, uh, not because of how great we are or even how uh, badly we miss the mark, but because you have come and you've lived for us and you've died for us, you've restored us, you've renewed us, and you've given us an invitation to experience new life with you. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that in this moment that we would experience that sacred encounter that Saul of Tarsus experienced. I ask that your power, uh, your grace would come and just completely transform us all over again. I pray that you would come and uh, maybe strip down walls of pride or insecurity or doubt or fear or whatever is keeping us from experiencing you and locking our eyes on you. Holy Spirit, would you, would you just come and pour out grace upon grace. Would you allow us, Lord, to experience your grace? Would you humble us in your grace? And would you also raise us up in that grace? Lord, I praise you that you're not far and distant, that your word says that we have freedom of access, that we can come with boldness and confidence to you. So maybe in your own thoughts, in your own words, would you just come to Jesus with boldness and confidence? Would you embrace the person of grace? Would you ask him to renovate your heart, to continually transform it? As you just open up yourself, you empty yourself, you come before him, poor in spirit, and ask him to transform you, to make you more like him. Spirit, help us to remember daily that we are receivers, not achievers. Uh, Help us to remember that you have powerfully saved us and you're going to sustain us. Help us to remember to draw near to you and be empowered by your grace to live a life on mission. In Jesus' name.